Hello, I'm Patrick Cronin, Director of the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for New American Security, and we're here in our continuing series of podcasts in support of our Alliance Requirements Roadmap Project, thinking through ways that the United States and allies like Japan can strengthen capacity of countries throughout the region. And today we're joined by Grant Newsham, who's been doing some of the most forward thinking on how to improve amphibious capability in with U.S. allies and partners. He's done it directly with uh, Japan in terms of exercising and, and thinking through the analysis of what is possible. But he's also laid out some very intriguing ideas with respect to building regional capacity. So, Grant, welcome to this podcast. Okay, thanks very much, Patrick. Glad to be here. So, broad question, just in terms of reminding our listeners, what is the role of amphibious power in security today, especially in the Asia-Pacific? Well, amphibious uh, operations, amphibious capability uh, is really nothing more than um, combining sea, ground, and air capabilities into one package and being able to move it around over the ocean, being able to move it from uh, the sea, from ship to shore, doing something once ashore, and then going back onto the ships and going somewhere else. Uh, The geography of the Asia-Pacific region with a lot of ocean a lot of islands and a lot of coastline is, in fact, perfectly suited for this sort of capability. And one of the areas that all countries in the Asia-Pacific region has to be concerned with is humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations. How does amphibious capability uh, assist with the potential response to disaster? Uh, Well, if your disaster has happened anywhere close to the coastline, and they usually do in the Asia region, uh, that Dealing with it from the sea is always the most effective uh, way. You you On land, you've got destroyed infrastructure. Uh, There's not much to work with. That's where your injuries are, your damage. Uh, If you can come from the ocean, you can bring large numbers of people. You can bring supplies, equipment. Uh, You can bring um, craft to use from ship to shore. You can use helicopters. Uh, You can get in. You can get into the stricken zone. Uh, Obviously, approaching from the sea, you have no obstacles. Uh, additionally, you have some benefits of not of you can operate from the sea, and therefore the relief force is not a burden on the uh, local uh, populace that's trying to just trying to survive. Uh, there's a long history of successful amphibious humanitarian assistance disaster relief operations uh, going back decades. Um, a couple prominent ones were the two Sea Angel exercises that were done in Bangladesh in 1991, and then another one around 2006. And these were both conducted by uh, U.S. Marine, U.S. Navy uh, amphibious units. And it's estimated that these probably saved about a quarter million lives in in each case. Without the ability to come from the sea, uh, it really would have been impossible to have any sort of effective uh, disaster relief. And taking a country you know well, Japan, I mean, even back in March 2011 with the triple disaster, were there not repercussions from Japan's lack of capacity and amphibious movement and capability? Uh, yeah, about three, 4,000 dead people. Uh, what happened there was that the Japanese Navy got up to the disaster zone in Tohoku very quickly, uh, but they found once they got there, they couldn't d- uh, close that last kilometer from ship to shore. They had no way to get into the affected zone. They didn't have the Uh, the equipment, they didn't have the amphibious vehicles, Uh, they didn't have the know-how, they weren't able to operate jointly with the Japanese Army and the Japanese Air Force 
to conduct coordinated disaster relief. As a result, they just floated offshore well probably in the first 24 to 48 hours. I would estimate three to 4,000 people who could have been saved were allowed to freeze to death. And this was the result of Japan not developing an amphibious capability. And, and that's beginning to change in part because of you. But could you just explain very briefly what we have done with Japan over the last few years to improve their amphibious capability? Um, what we've done, it, it's, uh, it's striking actually how fast Japan has come from a standing start within about three years to having a, a rudimentary amphibious capability where they can bring together several uh, Japanese Navy ships, put uh, Japanese uh, Army troops aboard with their helicopters, with their equipment, and go conduct exercises for as far away as off the, uh, the coast of Southern California. And this, uh, the, really one of the genesis of this was the, the failure up in Tohoku. Um, the Marines and the U.S. Navy have been very help instrumental in assisting the Japanese and teaching them and suggesting things, encouraging them. And, and I would note one very good example of how fast the Japanese have come along is in November 2014, uh, after the, um, no, it was 2013, excuse me, the uh, typhoon in the Philippines. Haiyan. Uh, that's right, Typhoon Haiyan, and which led to Operation Damayan. The Japanese, on the drop of a hat, brought together three Navy ships, about a, about a thousand uh, G uh, ground self-defense force troops, and sent it down to the Philippines uh, and were, were useful. And that's uh, it's quite something to have come that far in about three years. It's, there's a long way to go, of course. Well, these humanitarian assistance disaster relief operations are sometimes considered to be on the low end of the operational challenge. At the other end of that spectrum, of course, is how to counter the rising capabilities that we sometimes dub anti-axis area denial, especially precision-guided munitions, but also next-generation aircraft, undersea warfare, uh, ballistic cruise missiles, and a, a series of cyber and space capabilities that are forcing U.S. power projection capabilities farther and farther offshore of the Asian mainland and outside of the first island chain. How does amphibious warfare capability help counter this A2AD challenge? Well, Patrick, an, an, an amphibious capability gives you a very useful part, a useful sort of, cap um, sort of, uh, sort of tool to use in a counter A2AD uh, strategy. And there's a couple ways that amphibious forces are particularly useful. And, and always remember that these are mobile forces that can move around uh, freely by sea, can uh, smoothly go from ship to shore uh, and do things. Um, but there's two main ways. And one of these, the first one, is it can prevent the, I'm called the outward, move, further outward movement of uh, Chinese A2AD capabilities uh, so in as far as the, the first island chain and even and uh, distant territories beyond the Chinese mainland. Uh, you really, in order to, um, it's still a, a truism that you have to sometimes seize and occupy territory. You can either be taking it from somebody, you can be getting there first to deny it to somebody, um, you may also want to take territory in or for your own forces to use it for further offensive operations. And it's a truism that only ground forces and the kind of ground forces that amphibious uh, forces can provide are sometimes necessary to actually take uh, and hold territory. Uh, that bit of warfare really hasn't changed much. So that's one way that amphibious forces are useful, sort of forestalling the out further outward movement of A2AT 
uh, by the, the PRC, but another uh, very useful role that these um, forces play um, is that in um, helping to enforce, call it our own A2AD uh, system. It's often uh, forgotten that A2AD works both ways, and U.S. and partner nations are quite capable of setting up their own A2AD networks, which would um, forestall and certainly make uh, life difficult for uh, PAC uh, forces. And amphibious forces, I think, are, are, uh, can be very useful uh, if, for example, occupying key terrain and then employing a, a handful of uh, specific types of weapons that are very well suited for A2AD operations. Uh, this could include anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, HIMARS, uh, rocket artillery, which can be adopt, adjusted for in an anti-ship role. Uh, they can do uh, air defense uh, over ex quite extensive uh, range uh, with smart mine technology. Amphibious forces operating from the land can operate, um, can actually set up a very sophisticated uh, mine uh, minefields. Um, and additionally, there's even an anti-submarine role which uh, amphibious forces can play. Um, keep in mind that you can move these systems around, and that's one of the benefits of being amphibious. And when you can, one, they're hard to detect in the first place, and when you move them around, they get even harder to detect. So from an enemy's perspective, uh, it's very difficult uh, targeting-wise. Well, and geographical dispersal is indeed, many people see it as a key to future strategic leverage and strength, especially in the Asia-Pacific region. When you think about other U.S. allies or potential partners in the Indo-Pacific, you mentioned that Japan has, has learned so much and come so far in a short period of time. But what about others like Australia, India, but also in Southeast Asia, Philippines, Vietnam, or Thailand? What are some of the strengths and capabilities that they bring to amphibious capability? Can they, can they actually learn to do enough that, to be helpful in countering A2AD? I think that they can. Uh, you find that many of the nations in Southeast Asia and, the, and Asia, and the ones you've mentioned, they all have a certain degree of amphibious uh, capability. Um, and it, sometimes it ranges from rudimentary to actually fairly sophisticated. Um, the Indonesians actually have a, um, it's once again a surprisingly a good uh, am, uh, amphibious capability. Uh, the Philippines are, have got a long ways to go. The Australians will, within a year or two, will have a, something like a small uh, U.S. Marine, Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, work that um, operates from Australia's new amphibious ships. Um, these and India as well has a, a basic uh, um, amphibious capability, and once again, their terrain uh, cries out for that sort of thing. Um, to actually get to the point where uh, they can operate in an A2AD uh, role, um, either against uh, to, to forestall an enemy or actually as part of a, an, an allied or a partner nation uh, A2AD system, that's probably going to take them a little while. Some of the equipment uh, the, the sort I mentioned has to be obtained. You have to figure out how to use it. Um, there has to be a strategy uh, for using it. But but in most of those cases, that if a concerted effort is made and there's inter and if there is interest in the from, on both sides, that it should be possible to integrate these into a even an informal um, A2AD uh, network. And you'll find also that some places, for example, Vietnam. Um, whilst they may not uh, be integrated into anything, they just um, if they were to have anti-ship uh, cruise missiles, for example, um, that causes some problems for somebody encroaching into um, you know, Vietnamese waters. 
so there's a long you can uh, it, it varies from country to country uh, but there's an and there's a ways to go but there this is something with the right equipment and the right ideas uh, that it would be possible to get um, or to uh, to be part of an A2AD structure. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for this primer on amphibious power as we think about the Alliance Requirements Roadmap Project. Okay, thanks very much.